As you know, Pastor Bill was preaching through Romans leading up to the pandemic and stopped in, in wisdom for the situation we were in to address needs that we had. And so he was unable to finish Romans, so I just encourage you to open up to Romans 1-1 this morning. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> had to do that. Bill's here. <laughs> we only have a few things to correct. <laughs> oh, goodness. I won't say that on Facebook. <laughs> Bill, it is, a, it is a blessing to have you back among us. I don't know if you all have been able to say hey to Pastor Bill uh, over the last few weeks. He's been here. Was this your third or fourth week with us? And fourth. Uh, he's been sneaking in and out and and uh, he and I have had lunch a couple times. It's just a joy to have you back, brother. Uh, we're not starting back at Romans 1-1, although I do want you to start in Romans 1 this morning. Um, we're going to look at a few things to get, to get caught back up. We won't spend much time there, but I do want to start there. Many of you are readers. Many of you have bookshelves at home, or you have Kindles, or you go to the library, you frequent the library. You enjoy a good book. And I would ask you, what is, what is a book that you would say, this is a page-turner? Have you ever had that book that you just, you just couldn't put down? Or, or maybe that book that you wanted to put down, but you couldn't, because it was so gripping, it was so moving, it was so challenging. Maybe it was that book that just radically changed the way you thought about life, or about the way you thought about finances, about the way you thought about marriage, or perhaps even the way you understood who God was. What would that book be? Maybe for some of you it would be the Lord of the Rings. You love a good epic fiction novel. Maybe some of you would say the Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe it would be some type of book that, that influenced you theologically. Knowing God is one that a lot of people would list. Or Basic Christianity by John Stott, one that has been used of the Lord in significant ways over the years. Evangelism and sovereignty of God was one that just really radically influenced my thinking and my understanding of God and His sovereignty. Or maybe it was a book like Frontiersman, the telling of Simon Kenton and, and what he did as a frontiersman, a, just an epic, epic story. Or maybe Pilgrim's Progress, a book that God has used in the lives of many to encourage them in their Christian life and in their walk with the Lord. When we look at the scriptures and we go through the 66 books contained in the canon, there are different books that we enjoy. Perhaps you have an Old Testament book that you would say, this is my favorite book. I love going back to this book and, and if I'm restless spiritually, I just come back to this book time and time again. Maybe that's the book of Psalms for you. Maybe it's Genesis, hearing the, the stories of the patriarchs. You journey into the New Testament, maybe you love the book of John and the, the rich theology that points to Christ and who He is as the Son of God. But I'm not sure that there is any book that I've heard time and time again be so influential in the lives of God's people than the book of Romans. People time and time again say, I love this book, I love Philippians, I love Jeremiah, but I just love Romans. Romans is an influential book in the canon. It is a, an epic writing of the Apostle Paul. 
Perhaps his most significant work in the New Testament, you could say. It's a book that God has used to radically transform the lives of countless people over the years. And I would say he has used it to transform my own. And perhaps many of you would say the same. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to jump back into Romans 11. Bill got us through the end of Romans 10. And so we're going to pick back up in Romans 11 this morning. But before we get there, I just want you to kind of remember and survey what Paul has said. That's why I genuinely said, let's look at Romans 1.1. Because <laughs> Paul begins writing and we meditated on Romans 1.16. That, that passage that is so well known, the passage that as I preach right now, I'm standing upon buried below this pulpit. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. A very important statement as Paul lays out what he's about to say. Because he's about to say some very difficult things to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And so he makes this statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to save. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And then he starts unfolding all that he would write. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, we begin reading. And you can just flip with me as we walk through the book. But we, we read of God's wrath displayed as he pours it out on man simply by giving man what he wants. As he turns man over to his own desires. That is repeated three times in that passage. And we see the digression of man's sinfulness getting worse and worse and worse. His condition does not get better on his own. We walk into chapter 2 and we read of God's righteous judgment over sin. His wrath of sin. We read things such as that those who live apart from God are storing up wrath for them day by day until his judgment is revealed. We walk into chapter 3 and as we come out of God's righteous judgment, we come to chapter 3 and we hear that God will judge, he will uphold his righteousness. And there is no one in this world, in the history of this world, that stands righteous before God. No one is righteous. No, not one, he says in 3 verse 10. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless and no one does good. Not even one. It does not matter where you're from, who you are, what your name is, what your heritage is, what your bank account says, or how popular you are, how skilled you are, how many times you go to church. There are none who are righteous on their own. We all need Christ. But thanks be to God, Paul continues writing and we get to 3.21. And if you're reading Romans, when you get to 3.20, you're kind of thinking, woe is me. <laughs> this is not good news. And we get to 3.21 and Paul declares, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we hear the good news. As Paul begins preaching that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone that God is the just one and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ in verse 26 of chapter 3 he then goes on in chapter 4 and he gives a supreme example of the one justified by faith it is not by works but we are justified by faith just as Abraham was the promise that came to his offspring, not because of lineage, but because of faith. The righteousness of faith in verse 13. We get out of Abraham's example, and in chapter 5, Paul writes of the peace 
that we have with God because we have been justified by faith. We are now at peace with God, those who have believed in Him. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he writes. What a great privilege. What a great blessing we have in Christ because we have been justified by his grace, by our faith. We go into chapter 5, verse 12, and it's a a lengthy section into verse 8, really, where Paul starts working out what does this look like. We are dead to sin as we have been justified by faith. We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, and therefore we do not submit any longer to the law of sin. But we live free in Christ, and he works this out. What does it look like? Does that mean we just go and sin all we won't know? It doesn't. We live by the grace of God, and we live for the glory of God. We live submitting fully to his righteousness. We have been released from the law. We have been set free from the law. We have been freed from the law. And so we are to no longer put ourselves in subjection under it. We are no longer to submit to the law. We submit to Christ and we live for Him and we experience this battle as those who are believers. There is this battle going on that we fight to live for Christ. And we battle the sin in our lives. And Paul bursts forth in this, this tension in chapter 7 where he says, the things that I, that I do not want to do, I do. And I find myself doing the very things that I don't want to do. And this agony and this turmoil, and he says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. What will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? But he says the end of chapter 7 there, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. There is no condemnation. Why? Because Christ has set us free. We have been justified through faith by God. And so he bursts forth in this praise of life in the Spirit. He praises God for what it means to be an heir of Christ. And he talks about this future glory. We come into chapter 8. Such a beautiful and a truly epic passage of Scripture where we hear of God's great plan, God's great design, the confidence we have that we know that for those who love God, all things work for good and those who, for those who are called according to His purpose. We read of His great plan that those whom He foreknew He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among brothers. What a beautiful certainty we have in Christ. That He is constantly working to make us like Him. That He will bring us to completion of the work He began. He will sanctify us and we will ultimately be glorified as we stand in His presence. The end of chapter 8. He goes into the great joy of what it means to be loved by God. And to know that nothing separates us from His love. Nothing separates us from his love. And after chapter 8, you just get this sense that Paul is just writing and he's writing and he's writing. It's that point if he's preaching the sermon verbally, it is this crescendo and he is excited. And he comes to this high point celebrating and rejoicing in the love of God. 
And then as chapter 9 begins, maybe the tone comes down. And we sense this tension and grief in his heart. As he starts sharing of his love and his concern for his kin. Those fellow Jews. How he longs to see them saved. He longs to see them saved so much so in verse 3 of chapter 9. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. If it means their salvation, Paul is saying, if it means that my fellow Jews will be saved, then send me to hell. I want them to know my king. And so he goes on into chapter 9 and, and chapter 10, and he, he starts explaining what this means. He starts explaining what it means to understand that God has mercy upon whom he has mercy. He starts explaining how God chose Jacob over Esau. He starts explaining and reminding us that when we don't understand, we can't look to him and go, God, how could you do that? Because we are merely the pots and he is the potter. We are the clay. He molds us and shapes us as he will. He has created us for his purposes. And we have to submit to that truth. So he continues to work this out. We see again his heart in the beginning of chapter 10 that his heart's desire and his prayer to God is that they may be saved. He wants his kin to be saved. He wants the Jews to come to faith in Christ. And as we walk through chapter 10, we have that, that beautiful passage. The beautiful passage that says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He does not say that all who have this heritage will be saved, but all who have faith in Christ, all who call on his name will be saved. And he asks us that question, that series of questions, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you see Paul's heart? Do you see, do you sense, do you hear his longing for his fellow Jews to come to faith in Christ? And that brings us into chapter 11. It brings us into chapter 11 where we arrive and we hear all of that's brought here, brought Paul to this point. And he begins by asking a question, and this question is in light of, of, of knowing the struggle that's in his heart. It's in light of us understanding that he longs for the Jews to be saved. And what we're going to see here, and we see, and, and Paul has done this all through the book, all through the book, but we really see it starting to come out in chapter 11, that Paul has this really careful balance that he, that he has. As he walks through Romans, as he deals with what he's going to deal with, with Israel in chapter 11, he maintains a very careful balance of the deep significance of Israel and salvation history while not setting them over here by, to be saved by a different standard. So he does not ignore or change or speak little of, of Israel's significance in God's plan. They indeed are very significant in God's plan. In salvation history, they are significant. But he does not hold them to a different standard of salvation. Paul is very clear that salvation is by Christ alone and all need Christ. 
We have to keep that in mind as we read Romans 11. And as we do so, I, I want to give you a few principles of interpretation. Before we read Romans 11, we are going to get into Romans 11. But when we come to passages of Scripture, Romans 11 is a difficult chapter. It, it just is. And as we come to passages like Romans 11, we need to understand just a few foundational principles of interpretation. Here's the first one I would give to you. This is just in general. One is that context is critical. Context is critical. We have to know what is going on in the book. We have to understand what the author is saying and why it's being said. If you neglect context when you read Scripture, then you're going to end up in some really unbiblical areas. You're going to come to some very unbiblical conclusions about what God is saying in Scripture if you don't pay attention to context. So we must pay attention to context. The second principle I would say is that we need to allow clear passages of Scripture to shed light on the unclear passages of Scripture. It's, it's the, the principle of saying that Scripture interprets Scripture. It means if we come to something and we go, wow, what does that mean? I don't really understand that. And there's several passages in Scripture like this. They're just difficult. They're hard for us to un understand, interpret, because we are not those original hearers. There are some assumptions that Paul makes that we don't necessarily make, and we have to really study and understand. But when we come to those passages of Scripture, we look and go, okay, this is difficult. I can see, though, where Paul said this, and so I know he's not contradicting himself. And I also know that elsewhere in the Gospels or in the New Testament, the Old Testament, it says this, and so God's not going to contradict himself. So that helps me to understand and to shed light and to interpret passages of Scripture. So we have to keep that in mind. We don't form a position or a doctrine based on something that is unclear. And we remember that God will never contradict himself. The third principle is this, is that we need to learn and practice biblical theology. We need to understand what biblical theology is. That it, it is simply the study and the reading of Scripture from cover to cover and understanding as we go through what each part, how it relates to the whole. Maybe the easiest way to understand this is, is you can, you can uh, understand biblical theology as, as almost like you would if you were just reading a normal book. I, I don't pick up the Chronicles of Narnia and just start at a random page. I don't open up the Frontiersman and try to start at this random page and understanding what's going on in the life of Simon Kenton. No, I start from the beginning and I work my way through and as I read something and go, wow, why did he do that? Why, I understand why he did that because I understand what I've read before. So systematic theology takes a concept or a doctrine, say baptism, or it takes the church, or it takes uh, the doctrine of God and looks at all of Scripture and how does it speak to that doctrine. Biblical theology goes and looks at the narrative, the story, the story of Scripture, and sees how God is progressively working out His plan of redemption. And so we understand Romans in light of all of Scripture. And we understand Romans 11 in light of all of Romans. It's very important as you study the Scriptures. So keep those three principles in mind, and let's read Romans 11, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, 
how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul comes to Romans 11 and he anticipates this question from the Roman church. he's, He's talked about how all need Christ. And he's talked about how we are saved by grace alone, that we are justified by faith alone. There's nothing else that saves us. And he comes to Romans 11, and he knows what people are asking. He just spent Romans 9 and Romans 10 talking about the fact that, that God makes sovereign choices. And he comes to Romans 11, and he knows that the people are thinking, wait a minute, Paul, hold on, back, back up. Are you really saying, I mean, we're Jews. <laughs> are, are you really saying that we have to be justified by faith? If so, does that mean that, that God has rejected us? The God who said that He chose us and He made us His people, he, He's rejected us? Surely not. So Paul anticipates this question. Paul is a good preacher and he comes and he says, listen, I ask you then. Before they can ask it, Paul says, let me go ahead and ask what you're thinking. Has God rejected his people? By no means. By no means. Are are you sitting and you're hearing and you're going, there's no hope for Israel then if this is the case. Is that right, Paul? That's what you're saying? There's no hope for Israel? And, And Paul says, no, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not what I'm saying. There is certainly hope for Israel. There is absolutely hope for Israel. Do do you remember when Israel rejected God for a king? Do you remember that? Where they say, hey, hey, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king too. God's not good enough. We want a king like all the other nations. And they reject God. Samuel's upset about that. And God says, it's okay. They have not rejected you, they've rejected me. And so the people come to Samuel. It's the, it's the passage that, uh, that Pastor Mike read. Right? They come and they, they say, we, we, would you pray for your servants, so Lord your God, that we wouldn't die? For we've added to all our sins this evil that we would ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Why? For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. 
And so Paul here says, no, he, he has not rejected his people. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, and he's, he's drawing on that. He's bringing them back to understand and to remember. And he says, by no means, by no means. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. It's the same word that he used in 829. It's the same word that he, if you, you don't have to flip over, but if you want to flip over in 829, he says, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. It's the great golden chain. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. It's the same word. And we understand, remember, what did we say? We said what? That context is critical. Context is critical. It's the same word that talks about God setting his mercy upon someone. It's not based on something that they would do, that he just knew that, that the people would do this, and so I'm going to set my forearms. Because I knew that, then I'm going to act this way. No, it's God setting his mercy upon them beforehand, before eternity, or back in eternity past. God setting his mercy, determining that he would set his mercy upon his people. And in 829, we see that he is the context for this foreknowledge. It ultimately leads to salvation. But the context is a little different here in 11.2. Paul uses the word in the context of the nation of Israel. He uses the word in the context of understanding the nation as a whole. God has not rejected Israel, his people whom he foreknew. He has not rejected those whom he said, I have chosen you of all the nations that I might bless you. He has not rejected them. But we know, what do we know? We know from reading Romans that this does not mean that all, of Jew, all the Jews are saved. Because Paul is very clear throughout Romans that it's salvation by faith alone. In 3 verse 9 he says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In 3.28, he writes that one is justified by faith apart from works. In 4.13, it is the promise of Abraham that came through the righteousness of faith. In 9.6, he writes that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And in 10.13, it is all who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. So we understand contextually in the book of Romans that Paul is not saying that he has not rejected his people. This means that they're all saved. He is saying that he has indeed set his mercy upon Israel in eternity past, so he definitely has not rejected them entirely. Hope is not lost for Israel. Hope is not lost. And he gives two examples. He gives two examples of how he knows this. What is his first example? What is his first example? Look in your text there. Verse 1. He says, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, listen, God hasn't rejected Israel. I'm a Jew. And he's brought me to faith. He came upon me on the Damascus road. And he opened my eyes to who he was. Remember we talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. That he brought Paul from, from beholding Jesus as just a mere man. A man who was a rebel rouser, a carpenter, starting a, a false religion, a cult, a sect. That needs to be stomped out. He brought Paul from seeing him as a mere man to seeing and beholding that he was the Son of God. 
And Paul's a Jew. Paul says, listen, let me share my testimony. This is who I am. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has saved me. And so essentially Paul is saying when it comes, or when it seems as though the Jews would crush the followers of Jesus, God redeemed the most zealous of all. He redeemed me. Hope is not lost. (laughs) Hope is not lost. The second example, verses 2 through 4. He asks, he says, do you you not know what Scripture says about Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? He's he's talking about the passage in in 1 Kings chapter 19, 9 through 8, where where Elijah has confronted the prophets of Baal, and we see that incredible display of God's power. And then right after he flees from Jezebel, right? It's, it's, It's like an Old Testament Peter, right? He, he's this grady, great man of faith over here, and then all of a sudden he's running from Jezebel, right? And, and he's running, and he comes, and he laments before the Lord and says, it's, it's just me. No one is seeking the Lord. No one wants you, God. It's just me. That's it. I'm all by myself, God. What are we going to do now? And God, God says, no, no. There are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to Baal. It's 1 Kings 19, verse 18. There's a remnant. I have kept back a remnant. I have set apart, and you don't know about them. But they are there. And they have not bowed the knee. They worship me. And so when it seems as though all hope is lost, when it seems as though all hope for Israel is gone, there is a remnant. There's a remnant that I have saved. And so Paul writes in verse 5, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. He is going back again to what he's just written in verse 9 and 10, that it is by grace. There is a remnant chosen by grace. Contextually, we come right out of Romans 9 and 10 into verse 11. Just as in Elijah's day, God has set aside a remnant chosen by grace, Paul says the same is true now. That remnant is not based upon national heritage, a particular tribe. It is not according to keeping the law or the sacrificial system. It is by God's grace. The salvation of this remnant is according to his grace. And Paul states the obvious. But he states it because sometimes we're hard-headed and we need to hear it. He he says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Because otherwise grace would not be grace. Isn't that interesting? This same confusion is in our day. That we would say, oh yeah, we're saved by grace alone. But then practically we live as though we're building up like these credits We're building up and we're earning our salvation. We don't do that. We don't earn, we don't merit God's favor. It's by grace alone. Grace cannot be earned or inherited. If so, it is not grace. So Paul encourages the people that hope is not lost. Hope is not lost. Verse 7, we read of Israel's failure. He says, what then? What then? Israel failed to obtain 
what it was seeking. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. What were they seeking? What, what were they seeking? Look at nine, chapter 9, verse 30, where he wrote, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is righteousness, that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Who's that stumbling stone? Jesus. We see that all throughout the New Testament. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. That is what they failed to obtain. In chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, when Paul's lamenting and he's expressing his concern for his people, he says that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Do you remember? Do you remember Romans? What is God's righteousness? Go back to chapter 3, verse 20. Verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21. Paul tells us what God's righteousness is. It says, but now the righteousness of God that is, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. I was only supposed to read two verses of that, but you can't stop. <laughs> you can't stop. What a beautiful passage. That we are justified by His grace as a gift, that we are Saved, we are redeemed by faith. The righteousness of God is not self-attained. It is not something we earn. It is not something we're born with. The law and the prophets bear witness to it that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For all who believe. That is the righteousness of God. And that is what they failed to obtain. It, Israel was seeking this righteousness. They were seeking to be righteous before God, this righteous standing, and they did not obtain it. They did not obtain it. Why? Because they are seeking it in themselves and not in Christ, not in the Messiah. Oh, but here he makes another statement. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect obtained it. Those chosen by grace, those were saved, made, they were made righteous through faith in Christ. They obtained it. They obtained their righteousness. How? Because Christ gave it to them. Christ clothed them with it. He cloaked them. They stood there and Christ wrapped his righteousness around them. His righteousness imputed to them. They obtained it through faith in Christ. Oh, but the rest were hardened. 
The rest were hardened. They continued in sin, zealous for God, but without knowledge, living with eyes that did not see and ears that did not hear. And they just progressed down this path of moral failure. And that's what he talks about in the remainder of that section that we're looking at this morning. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. They have deaf ears, blind eyes, hardened hearts. Their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. They are hardened before God. So what do we take away from this passage? Why has God seen fit for this passage to be in the canon of Scripture, preserved for His people, down to the moment right now where we read it? Here's the first thing we need to take, is that we need to know that God is faithful. God is faithful. He does what he says he's going to do. He keeps his word. He carries out his plan. So when the situations in life, the, the complexity of sin's brokenness, they can cause us to doubt his faithfulness. I mean, have you been there? Just even the complexity of sin's brokenness. When you look at a situation, you go, I don't know how to address this. I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to help this person. I, I just don't know. It's so complex. And if I do this, I, I, God, what in the world? God, how are you working out your plan? Are you there? That's essentially what the Romans would have been doing. God, if, if this is the case, does that mean you've rejected your people? Your people whom you love, your people whom you've chosen, have you, have you cast them aside? God, if, if that's the case, if, if you've cast them aside, God, I have no confidence in you. I can't trust you. But Paul says, no, no, by no means. He didn't cast them aside. No, our God is faithful. You can count on God. Even when you don't understand, when it's hard to wrap your minds around it, the complexity of the situation, the sin that has entangled you or entangled your home or your family, your loved ones, our nation. In the midst of that, we know that God is faithful. God is faithful. He has not rejected his people. He has not cast aside the Jews. I mean, in, in fact, <laughs> of all the peoples, God sent his son to the Jews. Listen to chapter 9, verse 4 through 5. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. God sent Christ as a Jew. It is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. God sent the Messiah to his people. Christ came. He has not rejected Israel. But we know that many Israelites have rejected God and continue to reject God to this day. 
That is the sheer reality that Paul is addressing here, is the reality that we live with, but it is also the reality that we know that God has preserved a remnant. God has made a way through Christ for all to be saved, all who call on the name of the Lord. Jew and Gentile alike will be saved by Christ. Christ is the key. Salvation is in Christ alone. So we trust God because we know He is faithful. We trust God because we know who God is. We know His character. We know that He is faithful. We trust God because we know what He has done in history. We have the testimony of God's work among His people. We understand church history. We look and we read church history. That in the midst of man's sin, in the midst of man's wickedness and depravity, that God is working and God raises up men and women day after day, year after year, in every moment of salvation history to do great works, to bring revival to his church. And that is no different today than it was in the day of Martin Luther. It is no different today than it was in the day of the Book of Romans or in the day of St. Augustine or in the day of you fill in the blank of history. God is faithful and we see what he has done in history. And we live in a day that wants to cast that aside. He wants to cast the wisdom of history aside. It wants to cast the testimony of history aside. And we must not do that. We must look to history and stand on the shoulders of men who have been faithful to God and trusted in his faithfulness. We know who God is. We know what he's done. We know what he's done in our own lives. I stand here today not because of my own means, my own wisdom, my own ability, but I stand here today because of God's gracious work of salvation in my life. And I stand here because God has been good to me and kind to me and providentially worked in my life to bring you this message today. There are many times in my life that I should have been dead by my own devices or by circumstances around me. But God has graciously brought me to this moment for some reason. He has worked in my life and he has brought me here to be testimony to you that God is gracious and God is good and God is kind and God is faithful. Thanks be to God. And many of you have that, well, no, all of you have that same testimony this morning. Every one of you. We stand here as witnesses, as signposts of God's faithfulness. Many of you would look at me and say, I should not be here today. But thanks be to God that you are because of God's work in your life. And we know what God has promised in His Word. We know what He's done in our lives. We know what He's promised in His Word. <laughs> we look forward to every promise of God being fulfilled. We live in the midst of the muck and the mire. We live in the midst of the brokenness and the heartache. The uncertainty. But we look forward to the day in which God restores all things and makes all things new in Christ. <laughs> because we know He's faithful. He is our hope. Great is His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, His hand has provided. Great is His faithfulness so this is a reminder of God's faithfulness and it's a reminder that when it seems that all is lost it's not it's not 
when it seems that there is no one else pursuing God, that is not true. Just as it was in Elijah's day, it is today. Just as it was in the day of Paul, it is today. That we look about and we see people left and right that are not following the Lord. They're not pursuing the Lord. Some of them are just living according to their own devices and what they want. Some of them are actively and aggressively pursuing to undermine Scripture, to undermine God's existence. That's always the attacks. That's always the attacks is to undermine God's existence or to undermine Scripture. You understand that, right? Some are attacking. Some are living according to their own religion. And there you can get that sense. You can, you can almost understand Elijah, don't you? There are days where you come home from work. There are days when you come home from school. Students getting ready to go to college. You are going into an environment where it will be easy to sit in your dorm room at night and go, I am the only one following God on my campus. Is it worth it? Is it really real? Is God really faithful? I'm here to tell you. <laughs> it is worth it. He is real. You are not the only one. You are not the only one. So you don't buy that lie. Follow Christ. Read the moments in Scripture where people felt alone and God said, A, I am here, and B, there is a remnant chosen by grace that is here that you don't know about, and I'm preserving them. You are not alone. You are not alone. That is a good word for us to remember. So no matter what, the day holds. Know that God is a faithful God. That God is working. That God has a plan. And you are not alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the testimony of Scripture that reminds us that you are indeed a faithful God. You are good, and we trust you. And God, there are, there are times, there are days, maybe even today, that some would gather and we come in with weak and feeble faith, clinging to a thread of faith. And God, we need these reminders. We need the reminder that you are faithful. We, we need the reminder that you are gathering up a people for yourself that nothing will prevail against your church. And so God, I pray that now as we stand to sing that we would trust every promise of your word. Now that we would trust that you are indeed a faithful God. That you are indeed good. That you do indeed have a plan and you are indeed carrying that plan out. So God, we stand today and we declare that in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the difficulty, in the complexity of life, in the complexity of sins and entanglements that we experience, God, we trust every promise of your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this morning.
From the breaking of the dawn to the setting of the sun, I will stand on every promise of your word. Words of power strong to say that will never pass away. I will stand on every promise of your word. For your covenant is sure, and on this I am secure. I can stand on every promise of your word. When I stumble and I sin, condemnation pressing in, I will stand on every promise of your word. You are faithful to forgive that in freedom I might live so I stand on every promise of your word guilt to innocence restored you remember sins no more so I'll stand Every promise of your word. 